three, two, one. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome everyone to Kuma House. As always, I'm your host Jordo, and I'd like to extend a big thank you to everyone out there for listening in today. Well, every December we like to put our best intentions forward as we set ourselves some resolutions, some sort of goal that we hope to achieve in the coming year. We're just about a month into the new year now, so I thought what better time to discuss probably the most made and also unfortunately the most broken resolutions that we set for ourselves. Today, we're talking about health, fitness, and nutrition. The reality of it is that most people don't start truly investing in their own personal health until it's almost too little, too late. Takes that one fateful conversation with a doctor or with a close personal friend saying, hey, if you want to make it to your retirement, you better shape up before some people finally start taking it seriously. And at that point, it becomes a difficult uphill battle of breaking years of bad habits while also trying to navigate the insane amount of information that's available today. If these are goals that you've set for yourself, I urge you not to be discouraged. Science is truly on your side. For example, a university in Gothenburg did a study and they estimated that about 99% of the human population could live to be 90 years of age or older by making anywhere between three and five changes to their daily lifestyle. So today we're going to take a look at some information surrounding the health and fitness industry in order to help you all make informed decisions and hopefully to help everybody navigate the fact versus fad dilemma. So where do we start? Well, perhaps you've heard that old cliche, you can't out-train a bad diet. Well, the thing about cliches is they're typically rooted in some sort of a truth, and this is no exception. Despite comments that have been made in the past by big junk food on how if everybody in the world just exercised, obesity wouldn't exist, the truth of the matter is that the overall health of our bodies is drastically affected by the quality of fuel that we provide them. I mean, you wouldn't put stale fuel into a car and not expect it to run a little rough, sputter and smoke as you drove it down the road. Well, our f these fine-tuned machines we call our bodies are no exception to that. You get out what you put in, and if you look back over the last hundred years, you can see that we have been progressively getting worse at this over time. A hundred years ago, one in 30 people were considered to be obese. Today, that's one in three and over 70% of adults are considered to be overweight by today's standards. So what's happened? What's caused this massive shift in health in our society? I think to truly understand, you need to take a step back and look at the evolution of humanity. Humans have been hunter-gatherers for longer than we have not been. And what that means is that programmed deep down in our DNA is the need for survival. As a hunter-gatherer, you don't know when or where your next meal is going to come from, and as such, we've grown to naturally choose foods with a high caloric density. You can even see this evident in studies that have been performed, where children will choose a banana over a bowl of fresh berries, or will choose a potato over peas and carrots. They're choosing a high-calorie 
dense food in place of something that maybe tastes better. And when you see children making these decisions almost subconsciously, it really does show you just how ingrained in our very existence these choices are. The survival mode mentality has allowed us to thrive till this point. However, this mentality doesn't blend well with our modern society where for most of us, food is a plenty. With that all being said, where you really start to see a shift in health on a global scale is around the 1970s. With the advancements in technology and the advancements in manufacturing processes, you see the dawn of what has now been affectionately named crap, calorie-rich and processed foods. The easy snack on the go almost brought about the demise of the good old-fashioned home-cooked meal. In our modern, busy, bustling society, we all too frequently reach for the less-than-healthy, preservative-packed, sugar-loaded, quick-fix over the hour or two at home in the kitchen with fresh ingredients, and we're paying the price for it. And if we know this food is so bad for us, why do we continually keep coming back to it? Well, the answer lies in the dopamine hit that we get in our brains from consuming sugar. Uh, in the 1800s, it was on average that most people would consume about four pounds of sugar a year. Today, that has uh, stretched to anywhere between 50 pounds to, in some cases, people eating around their own body weight in sugar annually. Maybe you don't think this information is concerning, but when you consider the fact that doctors say sugar is candy for cancer, and there's over 180,000 deaths that can be attributed to the negative health effects of consuming too much sugar, I really do hope that you'll reassess your stance on the matter. We've discussed a little bit about the things that you shouldn't eat, but what exactly should you be eating? There's so many diets and meal plans that you can find out there, and so many different resources that you can use. How do you know who to believe, who's right, and what's going to be the best for you? The truth is, that's a pretty loaded question, and I don't think we quite have enough time today to head all the way down that rabbit hole. But what I would like to address is the importance of educating yourself correctly. There are pros and there are cons to just about every single diet that's out there right now. However, what you need to acknowledge is that by attempting to remove something bad from your diet, you may be inadvertently removing something from your diet that you actually do require, in which case you will either need to find a new source for that or you will need to supplement for it accordingly. Let's use vegetarians for an example. I'm sure that some of you out there have a friend that made an attempt at going vegetarian only for five to six months in, you were practically begging them to eat meat because they were just looking unwell? Well, that's attributed to the fact that they were not correctly filling the gaps in their diets that was left by not eating meat. Whether you know this or not, meat is something that we consider to be a complete protein. Well, what does that even mean? Well, in these giant walking chemistry experiments that we call our bodies, there's these things called amino acids and they play a pivotal role in our body's functionality. Everything from production of hormones, to synthesis of neurotransmitters, to the ability to repair muscle tissue. So there's 20 of these amino acids total. 
11 of them we consider to be non-essential. And what that means is that our body produces these 11 amino acids naturally. The other nine, however, we have to get from our food. So when we talk about meat being a complete protein, what that means is that it contains all nine essential amino acids that our bodies require. Now, when you switch to a vegetarian diet, you don't have the benefits of being able to eat these complete proteins. So you have to determine what types of amino acids you're consuming and which ones you require in order to be correctly balanced. All this requires a lot of research and a lot of planning. This is also where supplementation can be uh, beneficial because there are things that you can get out of a supplement that maybe you'll be lacking in your diet that you would have a hard time getting otherwise. No matter what diet you choose, make sure you're educating yourself completely. Put the time in to fully understand what the requirements of you are to meet this diet. Don't just jump on a bandwagon because that's what's trending on social media at any given point in time. And as an additional note, don't be afraid to reach out to your doctor or to a nutritionist. These people have gone to school to better understand the way that the body works. Funny enough, in preparation for today's conversation, I read a book by Dr. Michael Greger called How Not to Diet. Although the book is a bit of a long read, I do highly recommend it. As always, I will leave the name of the book in the episode description for today. Among all the scientific facts and research, some of which we've actually discussed here today, uh, Dr. Greger unapologetically advocates for a plant-based diet. Um, the quality of foods that we're going to be putting into our body, but the big kicker that he continually comes back to is the content of fiber in our food. He refers to fiber, especially from a weight loss standpoint, as an almost calorie discounter. To put it into a little bit of perspective, let's use an analogy here. I'm sure that a lot of people out there have sat down to have a bite to eat for dinner and washed it all down with a bottle of apple juice. Well, maybe you did not know, but to achieve the same amount of caloric intake as a bottle of apple juice, you'd have to eat about five and a half cups of apples. Now, I would imagine there's not many people out there that are going to eat that five and a half cups of apples alongside their dinner. There was a study performed that was mentioned in the book where the researchers had two groups of people. The first group of people, they had eat three apples a day alongside their regular meals. The second group of people, they had eat three oatmeal cookies every day alongside their meals. The cookies and the apple both have the same value of calories, just a drastically different amount of fiber. What they noticed was the people that were eating the three apples a day just naturally ate less food. Fiber is something that our bodies don't digest, so consuming fiber allows us to fill our stomach without consuming the same amount of calories that we would normally. This almost acts as a sort of portion control, controlling the amount of food that we're actually eating without us feeling like we're starving ourselves. So we've discussed the importance of the quality of fuel that you're supplying your body. But what's also important is what you do with that fuel. I'm of course speaking about exercise and fitness. Now I think it's important to remember that we must choose exercises uh, that are appropriate for us our skill levels, and the goals that we're hoping to achieve. 
Don't rush things, risk hurting yourself, and end up going backwards in steps because now you're injured and have to recover. It's always good to push yourself, but within reason. I mean, a prime example of pushing yourself too far, 480 BC, at the end of the Greco-Persian War. The Greeks had just defeated the Persians and sent a runner back to Athens to report the victory of the army. This runner pushed himself so hard, by the time he arrived in Athens, he reported the victory and dropped it immediately. Now that little story wasn't designed to scare you away from trying to get some exercise in. It was just to promote you to, like the nutrition side of things, do your research to make sure that the exercises you're performing are what's best suited for you. I mean, if you look back into the 1960s, uh, aerobics became a huge thing. Shows on TV, uh, home video releases, and articles in fitness magazines. So aerobics is uh, getting your heart rate up to an elevated level and keeping it there for an extended period of time. This was always thought to be something that was extremely healthy. Well, in 2005, McMaster University performed a study with two groups of physically fit individuals. Group A was told to perform a traditional aerobic exercise several times a week for the course of a few months, and Group B was chosen to do a short, intense exercise that was extremely focused, something like riding an exercise bike at full speed for 30 to 60 seconds. At the end of the study, they found that Group A's endurance actually was about the same as their starting point. However, Group B, where you would maybe think that they wouldn't have much improvement, show, showed an endurance improvement of about 100%. What modern studies show is that long, low-intensity workouts are actually less effective. Um, they stimulate your heart, but that's kind of about it. A high-intensity, focused workout that puts a lot of pressure on the muscles uh, actually kickstarts the conversion process of glucose into energy uh, and provides a ramp up to the metabolic process going on inside your body. There is a huge amount of variance in the types of workouts that you can do, the way that you perform these workouts, uh, and the way you structure your entire workout as a whole. Um, what you really need to do is understand where you are uh, on a scale at this current point in time and where you hope to be. The other thing that I can't help but stress enough is understanding that things take time, especially when it comes to exercise. When you're looking to build muscle or to build strength, you're repeatedly having to break and tear the muscle fibers in order for them to be rebuilt stronger uh, and bigger. So if you're the type of person that starts working out and gets discouraged after a week or two without seeing any results, just stick with it. Or the other thing that can help you maybe move through this process a little bit easier is set more frequent, shorter goals. Instead of saying, I want to look like that by the time that the year is over, 
maybe break it down for yourself into reasonable, achievable, smaller goals that will allow you to see the results you're looking for faster and provide that motivation for you to keep going. Because motivation is a huge part in uh, the fitness process. I think another big key in keeping yourself motivated is remembering that you're always trying to become your very best self and not get caught up in all these social media influencers and fitness models. The thing you have to remember about these people is they've invested a lot of time to look the way that they do and this is essentially their career. Let's say you're an administrative assistant. You are probably able to type a ridiculous amount of words per minute. You come to work every single day, you sit down for eight hours in front of a computer and you type and you type and you type and you probably continually are getting better as well. Well, you have to think that these people are doing the same thing when it comes to fitness. So yes, it is okay to look to other people for inspiration, but try and avoid that comparative nature that's going to leave you feeling potentially insecure or uh, unmotivated to continue. Our mind is a magnificent thing and our worst enemy all at the same time. Maintaining a mental focus is key to achieving your goals. And I think that that's why in recent years, you're starting to see more of these fitness apps and more of these fitness programs offer some sort of a meditation section. Most people think that med meditation is just for relaxation, but that's not true at all. It can have a huge impact in your overall health and it can prepare your mind and your body to exercise. You can do meditations for focus. You can do meditations for motivation. You can, of course, do meditation for relaxation as well, for sleep, and really so many other benefits. If you're new to meditation, that's fine too. I highly recommend you look into it. For beginners, I recommend starting with something guided. Allow somebody who's got experience in the matter to sort of coach you through the breathing process and getting your head in the right space to meditate for what you're hoping to achieve. You'd be amazed with the amount of things your body can do if it's got the cooperation of your mind. Now, before we start winding this conversation down, there's still a couple more topics that I want to touch on. The first one of these things is water. Now, our bodies are 70% water. So I think that this is pretty important when it comes to our health. Our body's hydration allows our cells to function correctly, and it also allows us to remove toxins from inside our body. With it being such an important internal resource, you'd think there'd be more education surrounding it. There's a common misconception that you should only drink water when you're thirsty. However, that's not true. Your body considers your brain to be the most important organ inside of it. And therefore, your body is going to give up any water that it maybe doesn't require in order to keep the brain hydrated. By the time the brain becomes dehydrated enough to tell your body that it's thirsty, the rest of your body, the rest of the cells inside of your body have already been dehydrated for hours. So it's very important to make a conscious effort to maintain hydration in your body before your body tells you to do so. Now, there are a bunch of equations and a bunch of charts that you can find online that will tell you that based on 
what your height and weight is or how many calories you're intaking per day, you should be drinking X amount of water. But in actuality, just go out and get yourself a reusable water bottle, keep it full, and always remember to drink. Keep yourself hydrated and I promise you, your body will thank you for it. Now before we move on to the next topic of conversation, um, I'd like to touch on a book that I also read in preparation for this week's conversation. The name of the book is Super Life, The Five Simple Fixes That Will Make You Healthy, Fit, and Eternally Awesome. In this book, the author touches on the five life forces that he determines to be a necessity in maintaining proper health and well-being. These five life forces are nutrition, hydration, oxygenation, alkalination, and detoxification. We've definitely touched on some of this information here today, but there's so much more value that you can get out of this book. The author touches on all kinds of interesting things, like how depending on your geographical location, it may actually be more of a benefit nutritionally to buy frozen fruit and vegetables versus fresh fruit and vegetables off the uh, stand at the grocery store. I won't spoil this book for you, but like always, I will leave the information uh, in the episode description for today. Before we close out our conversation today, last but certainly not least, I want to talk about sleep. You've done all that you can while you're awake to affect your health and to affect your fitness, but without the proper recovery, it's all for naught. Your body needs time to rest, it needs time to relax, and it needs time to repair itself, and it does all of these things while you're sleeping. You go through a couple different stages while you're actually getting your night's sleep, but probably the most important of those stages is REM sleep. Now you've probably heard of REM sleep before, uh, REM stands for rapid eye movement. In this sleep stage, our eyes move around, but we have no visual input. However, there is an increased amount of brain activity during this uh, sleep cycle. On average, we enter REM sleep about 90 minutes after we first fall asleep. Then we go through the sleep cycle and about every 90 minutes thereafter, we re-enter REM sleep. This is where most people do their dreaming. Uh, however, it is possible to dream outside of REM sleep. Most of your vivid dreams that you typically remember are the ones that happen during REM, uh, and that's because of the increased brain activity that's going on. Now, dreaming aside, uh, REM sleep is, has many additional benefits, such as learning, memory, and uh, the effect on our mood. Uh, the brain processes uh, and consolidates memories during sleep. So as a result, uh, sleep deprivation can negatively affect your actual working memory. There was actually a study done back in 2016 uh, where they got a group of young, uh, healthy individuals and they found that sleep deprivation could actually increase the risk of forming false memories as well. And there's been other studies that show even a short amount of sleep during the day in adults can help us to better learn and commit to memory uh, different motor functions. An adequate amount of sleep has so many benefits for both our mind and our body. So I'm sure you can imagine all the terrible consequences that result from a lack of sleep. Some of the most notable, 
reduced coping skills. So there's some research out there that suggests that a lack of REM sleep may uh, reduce a person's ability to differentiate between a threatening and a non-threatening circumstance. Uh, you can get migraines, uh, and a lot of research links uh, a lack of sleep with an increased chance of obesity. Now, in this super busy society that we all live in these days, uh, it's way too often attributed that no sleep somehow equals a hard worker. But there's actually a lot of studies out there that show that sleep-deprived people are far less effective at any typical task than somebody who's gotten a full night's rest. So now you may be finding yourself asking, well, how am I supposed to get more REM sleep? Well, there's a few things that you can do that will promote REM sleep. For one, getting enough sleep. Uh, if you sleep at least seven hours a night, um, there's a higher chance that you're going to get more phases in REM uh, than somebody who's sleeping less than that. Uh, if you have any kind of medical conditions, one of the most notable is sleep apnea. In order to get diagnosed with this, you would have to discuss this with your doctor and they would have to send you for a sleep study. Try and avoid alcohol before bed. Uh, it can reduce the number of REM sleep phases that you will enter. Uh, blue light, so make sure you're turning your phones, make sure you're turning your TVs and your computers off at least an hour before you're going to bed. Uh, if you really want something to do in bed before falling asleep, try reading a book or try writing in a journal. I know we all like to be early risers and wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning, but spending the next hour every 5 minutes pressing the snooze button is actually doing more detriment than it is doing good. A lot of studies show that we should actually be setting one alarm for the latest possible time that we can. This allows us the longest period of uninterrupted sleep and gives us the uh, most potential for achieving as many REM phases as possible. Not to mention, if you share your bed with somebody who doesn't have to wake up at the same time as you, they will also greatly appreciate it. Well, it seems as though we've reached a pretty good stopping point for today. I'd like to thank everyone out there for listening in this week. I certainly hope you've all gained some new knowledge or some insight on the topic that we covered today. I'd like to invite you all to come back next week as we look into yet another intriguing and exciting topic of conversation. Our Instagram and our email are located in the episode description, so please feel free to reach out with any comments, questions, or concerns. If you have any ideas for future episode topics, please feel free to let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you've enjoyed this week's podcast, please consider liking and please consider sharing. If you or somebody you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please reach out to us uh, via email or on Instagram, and we'd be happy to set something up with you. As always, keep asking questions, always keep learning, and have a great week, everybody.